Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of today's episode, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 781 through 810. Do you ever look at someone else's life circumstances and think, well, if I were just dot, 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 if I only had dot, 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 if I had been given dot, 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 like this other person, then I'd be happier, holier, etc. Today, as we read through our catechism selection, we're going to pay particular attention to paragraph 783, which discusses how we all share in Christ's priestly, prophet, and kingly missions. So as baptized Christians, we all share in these three offices of Jesus Christ, the three offices of priest, prophet, and king. But for each one of us, that's going to look very different according to our life circumstances, the way that we've been built, the families into which we've been born. So as we unpack this catechism paragraph, three anecdotes come to mind. First, I think of this great priest with whom I used to teach who would periodically come into my classroom and just kind of open up the class to general Q&A. So he'd ask the kids, like, anything you're thinking about today, anything you have questions about, they would start raising their hands, asking questions, and he would answer them. And one day, I remember a female student asked him, Father, why don't I get to be a priest? And he just looked back at her and said, well, why don't I get to be a nun? (laughs) So that's the first anecdote that sticks out. Second anecdote that comes to mind is one of St. Therese of Lisieux, a famous and beloved Catholic saint of the 19th century. She desired to be both a priest and a missionary. Because she was a woman, she was not able to be a Catholic priest. And because of her life circumstances, uh, specifically her health, she was not able to be a missionary. Yet, despite barely leaving her little cloistered life and living a relatively short life, she died at the age of 24, she became patroness of missionaries and one of the most beloved saints in the church. Uh, She prayed from the cloister for missions around the world, and she prayed for the salvation of souls. And because of the beauty and the compelling nature of her life, Um, She is sought by many today. Her intercession is sought, and uh, many prayers are brought to Jesus through her. Third anecdote that comes to mind uh, is one from my brother. My brother, who I've mentioned before as a Catholic priest, will often preach and say in his, his teaching, play the hand you're dealt. So we've all been dealt a certain hand, uh, again, of life circumstances, disposition, personality, health, family, education, etc. So play the hand you've been dealt. God makes us to be incarnational beings. So the root word of that word incarnation is carne, meaning meat, or we're, we're bodily, we're fleshly. So we exist as human beings as body and soul in very particular circumstances. So for example, we were each born into a specific time, place, part of a specific family with certain strengths and certain weaknesses. We can rail against that 
So we can, again, look to the lives of others and think like, oh, if I had just been made to look like him or her, or if I had just been given the disposition of him or her, or if this or that came more naturally to me, then I would be happier, holier, et cetera. But we can't really change much of the hand that's been dealt to us. So for example, I'm fairly introverted by nature. I could work on being more extroverted, um, but I probably won't change that much. I'll just be tired as I try to be more extroverted. Um, Our daughter and son just participated in a summer camp a few weeks ago where they went to this really well-organized, well-run, high-activity camp from about 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. And at the end of the first day, I picked them up. They hopped in the car, and as they were buckling up, I said, how was camp today? My daughter, Sophia, who is very extroverted, was just brimming with excitement. It was so fun. We went swimming. I passed the swim test, and then we played on the playground, and then I had meatballs and pasta for lunch, and I made a new best friend. I said, what's your new best friend's name? She's like, I don't know, but she's great, and I would love to have a play date with her, and I can't wait to go back tomorrow. I was like, great. I then turned to my son, Declan, who's very introverted by nature. I said, Dec, how was camp today? He looked like the life had been drained out of him. He goes, good. I was like, did you have fun? He goes, yep. Want to go back tomorrow? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, good talk. So their little natures um, were were given to them. Sophia is very extroverted, uh, just the way that she was made. Declan is very introverted, the way that he was made. And they could try to work on changing that, um, but to what end? So play the hand you're dealt. Invite Christ into particular circumstances, into our strengths and weaknesses, and allow him to use those strengths to build up the church, the world, and allow him to use those weaknesses to build up the church and build up the world. Our weaknesses can serve first as a source of comfort, for example, to others with the same weakness. So the way that we manage, we deal with, we present to the Lord our weaknesses might serve as a source of inspiration to someone else who struggles with the same weaknesses. Or we might find someone with a similar weakness and work on it in ourselves with this other person and grow in fellowship as we grow in virtue. Secondly, our weaknesses can serve as a source of humility. While other things might be going great in our lives, That persistent weakness might keep us in check so that we don't fall into the sin of pride and, God forbid, eternally separate ourselves from God. Yikes, that sounds dramatic, but think of Christ saying, it's better that you cut off your hand and be saved than that you go to Gehenna with two hands. So it's better that I suffer a weakness and suffer the effects of my weakness and be spared from potentially being prideful and separated from God. So we can pray, God, you made me this way. You allowed, maybe not directly willed, each of these circumstances. Pour out your grace upon me and use every inch of my life for the unfolding of your beautiful plan for me and for others. Amen. Now let's read paragraph 783 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. The whole people of God participates in these three offices of Christ and bears the responsibilities for mission and service that flow from them. So these three offices, priest, prophet, and king, 
are three missions, three services, or modes of service entrusted to us in virtue of our baptism. Again, no matter our strengths, our weaknesses, our life circumstances, we are all called to be priest, prophet, and king in our daily lives. So first, priest. Christ came to intercede between God and man and to offer his life as a sacrifice so that the two may come back together. So the two, God and man, may come back into communion with one another. We participate in this first office and act as priests when we sacrifice to God on behalf of others. So it might be a physical sacrifice we offer up. Uh, You might fast on bread and water for a day. You might take a cold shower one morning. You might wake up an hour earlier than normal to do, let's say, the chore of another person in your house. It might be a spiritual sacrifice. For example, you might offer up a rosary, a mass, a holy hour, something else for another. Or you might allow yourself to be misunderstood or not publicly take credit for something you did. These are spiritual sacrifices we can offer up to God um, and in doing so, exercise our priestly office as part of what's known as the common priesthood of God. So we can make the distinction between the common priesthood and the ministerial priesthood. The ministerial priesthood refers to all men who are ordained uh, in virtue of holy orders to be priests for God's people. The common priesthood is something in which all of us participate, again, in virtue of our baptism. Second office entrusted to us in virtue of our baptism is that of prophet. Christ, who is the Logos, the Word of God, came to proclaim that word through his actual words and through his actions, all that he did and didn't do. We, too, participate in this, this second office, and act as prophets when we proclaim the word through our words and actions. I still remember, from almost two decades ago, a student with whom I attended college who was very beautifully, kind of quietly, in an understated way, uh, good at not gossiping. So whenever she was part of a conversation where I and others were gossiping, she not only didn't participate, she didn't gossip about the person or people, um, but she very just like quietly, simply diverted the conversation away to something else. And it was, it was so compelling and so instructive to me that I still remember it years later. So this, this young woman, the way she lived her life uh, was prophetic. She proclaimed the word of God by what she said and didn't say, by what she did and didn't do. Lastly, the third office, to, uh, which is entrusted to us in virtue of our baptism, is that of king. Paragraph 786 of the Catechism describes it this way. Finally, the people of God shares in the royal office of Christ. He exercises his kingship by drawing all men to himself through his death and resurrection. Christ, King and Lord of the universe, made himself the servant of all, for he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the Christian, to reign is to serve him, particularly when serving the poor and the suffering, in whom the church recognizes the image of her poor and suffering founder. The people of God fulfills its royal dignity by a life in keeping with its vocation to serve with Christ. So we participate in this third office when we serve others. We reign as kings and queens when we imitate Christ the King and serve others. Uh, I think of a woman at my home parish who 
is very involved in a number of ministries. Um, her children are older and out of the house at this point. Um, and so she devotes her, her time to serving others. She does everything from prison ministry to attending local school board meetings to object to questionable curriculum content to teaching grade school religious education Two, I recently heard a story about her um, where she found that because of this funny set of circumstances, there were very sadly a number of babies in our local morgue who had not been buried yet. There was this kind of like legal tie up where they couldn't be yet buried. And so they were just sitting there in the morgue, sadly. She and this other woman navigated the legal details and uh, had all of the babies buried. So I think of the, the corporal work of mercy, bury the dead. And she did this um, for a number of, of small children. So I marvel at how this woman serves in so many capacities. And I think even when my kids aren't small and I have more time, I don't think I could keep up with all that she does or do all that she does. Um, so again, we're... We're made in different ways. We're called to different life circumstances. And so Christ invites us to put our strengths, our weaknesses, our dispositions at the service of those around us in the best way that we can. I was recently consoled by a podcast episode from Bishop Robert Barron, who said that parents of small children do the corporal works of mercy every day. So we feed the hungry we give drink to the thirsty. We clothe the naked. It's like, yes, thank you. <laughs> so play the hand you're dealt. These opportunities to serve in our kingly office, to proclaim the word in our prophetic office, and to intercede between God and man in our priestly office are all around us. Mother Teresa famously said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. There are people immediately before us, and then we could go just a little bit further from that, our neighbors right outside our front door, those in our parish, our town, etc., who are ready to hear the word of God, and it's us who can speak it to them, who are ready to be served, and it's we who can serve them, who are ready to um, have sacrifices offered up for them so as to bring them closer to God. It's we who can offer up those sacrifices. So in virtue of our baptisms, we participate in the common priesthood of Jesus Christ. We can exercise our offices of priest, prophet, and king every day. We don't have to look far because God wants to help us, to help ourselves and to help others, so that we can be happy not just one day in heaven, but even now. We'll take a brief break. And then we'll return to read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 781 through 810. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 781 through 810. Paragraph 2, the Church, people of God, body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit. The Church, people of God, at all times and in every race, anyone who fears God and does what is right has been acceptable to him. 
He has, however, willed to make men holy and save them, not as individuals without any bond or link between them, but rather to make them into a people who might acknowledge him and serve him in holiness. He therefore chose the Israelite race to be his own people and established a covenant with it. He gradually instructed this people. All these things, however, happened as a preparation for and figure of that new and perfect covenant which was to be ratified in Christ, the new covenant in his blood. He called together a race made up of Jews and Gentiles, which would be one, not according to the flesh, but in the spirit. Characteristics of the people of God. The people of God is marked by characteristics that clearly distinguish it from all other religious, ethnic, political, or cultural groups found in history. It is the people of God. God is not the property of any one people, but he acquired a people for himself from those who previously were not a people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. One becomes a member of this people, not by a physical birth, but by being born anew, a birth of water and the spirit, that is by faith in Christ and baptism. This people has for its head Jesus the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, because the same anointing, the Holy Spirit, flows from the head into the body. This is the messianic people. The status of this people is that of the dignity and freedom of the sons of God, in whose hearts the Holy Spirit dwells as in a temple. Its law is the new commandment to love as Christ loved us. This is the new law of the Holy Spirit. Its mission is to be salt of the earth and light of the world. This people is a most sure seed of unity, hope, and salvation for the whole human race. Its destiny, finally, is the kingdom of God which has been begun by God himself on earth and which must be further extended until it has been brought to perfection by him at the end of time. A priestly, prophetic, and royal people. Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. The whole people of God participates in these three offices of Christ and bears the responsibilities for mission and service that flow from them. On entering the people of God through faith and baptism, one receives a share in this people's unique priestly vocation. Christ the Lord, high priest taken from among men, has made this new people a kingdom of priests to God his Father. The baptized, by regeneration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, are consecrated to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. The holy people of God shares also in Christ's prophetic office, above all in the supernatural sense of faith that belongs to the whole people, lay and clergy, when it unfailingly adheres to this faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and when it deepens its understanding and becomes Christ's witness in the midst of this world. Finally, the people of God shares in the royal office of Christ. He exercises his kingship by drawing all men to himself through his death and resurrection. Christ, King, and Lord of the universe, made himself the servant of all, for he came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the Christian, to reign is to serve him, particularly when serving the poor and the suffering, in whom the church recognizes the image of her poor and suffering founder. The people of God fulfills its royal dignity by a life in keeping with its vocation to serve with Christ. The sign of the cross makes kings of all those reborn in Christ, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit consecrates them as priests, so that, apart from the particular service of our ministry, all spiritual and rational Christians are recognized as members of this royal race and sharers in Christ's priestly office. 
What indeed is as royal for a soul as to govern the body in obedience to God? And what is as priestly as to dedicate a pure conscience to the Lord and to offer the spotless offerings of devotion on the altar of the heart? The Church, Body of Christ. The Church is communion with Jesus. From the beginning, Jesus associated his disciples with his own life, revealed the mystery of the kingdom to them, and gave them a share in his mission, joy, and sufferings. Jesus spoke of a still more intimate communion between him and those who would follow him. Abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. And he proclaimed a mysterious and real communion between his own body and ours. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. When his visible presence was taken from them, Jesus did not leave his disciples orphans. He promised to remain with them until the end of time. He sent them his spirit. As a result, communion with Jesus has become, in a way, more intense. By communicating his spirit, Christ mystically constitutes as his body those brothers of his who are called together from every nation. The comparison of the church with the body casts light on the intimate bond between Christ and his church. Not only is she gathered around him, she is united in him, in his body. Three aspects of the church as the body of Christ are to be more specifically noted. The unity of all her members with each other as a result of their union with Christ, Christ as head of the body, and the church as bride of Christ. One body. Believers who respond to God's word and become members of Christ's body become intimately united with him. In that body, the life of Christ is communicated to those who believe and who, through the sacraments, are united in a hidden and real way to Christ in his passion and glorification. This is especially true of baptism, which unites us to Christ's death and resurrection, and the Eucharist, by which, really sharing in the body of the Lord, we are taken up into communion with him and with one another. The body's unity does not do away with the diversity of its members. In the building up of Christ's body, there is engaged a diversity of members and functions. There is only one spirit who, according to his own richness and the needs of the ministries, gives his different gifts for the welfare of the church. The unity of the mystical body produces and stimulates charity among the faithful. From this it follows that if one member suffers anything, all the members suffer with him. And if one member is honored, all the members together rejoice. Finally, the unity of the mystical body triumphs over all human divisions. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is the head of this body. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the principle of creation and redemption. Raised to the Father's glory, in everything he is preeminent, especially in the church, through whom he extends his reign over all things. Christ unites us with his Passover. All his members must strive to resemble him until Christ be formed in them. For this reason, we are taken up into the mysteries of his life, associated with his sufferings as the body with its head, suffering with him, that with him we may be glorified. Christ provides for our growth. To make us grow toward him, our head, he provides in his body, the church, the gifts and assistance by which we help one another along the way of salvation. Christ and his church thus together make up the whole Christ. The church is one with Christ. The saints are acutely aware of this unity. 
Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. Do you understand and grasp, brethren, God's grace toward us? Marvel and rejoice. We have become Christ. For if he is the head, we are the members. He and we together are the whole man. The fullness of Christ, then, is the head and the members. But what does head and members mean? Christ and the church. That comes from St. Augustine. Our Redeemer has shown himself to be one person with the Holy Church, whom he has taken to himself. That comes from Pope St. Gregory the Great. Head and members form, as it were, one and the same mystical person. That comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. Lastly, a reply of St. Joan of Arc to her judges sums up the faith of the holy doctors and the good sense of the believer. About Jesus Christ and the church, I simply know they're just one thing, and we shouldn't complicate the matter. The church is the bride of Christ. The unity of Christ and the church, head and members of one body, also implies the distinction of the two within a personal relationship. This aspect is often expressed by the image of bridegroom and bride. The theme of Christ as bridegroom of the church was prepared for by the prophets and announced by John the Baptist. The Lord referred to himself as the bridegroom. The apostle speaks of the whole church and of each of the faithful, members of his body, as a bride betrothed to Christ the Lord, so as to become but one spirit with him. The church is the spotless bride of the spotless lamb. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. He has joined her with himself in an everlasting covenant and never stops caring for her as for his own body. This is the whole Christ, head and body, one formed from many. Whether the head or members speak, it is Christ who speaks. He speaks in his role as the head, ex persona capitis, and in his role as body, ex persona corporis. What does this mean? The two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. And the Lord himself says in the gospel, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are, in fact, two different persons, yet they are one in the conjugal union. As head, he calls himself the bridegroom. As body, he calls himself bride. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the church. To the Spirit of Christ, as an invisible principle, is to be ascribed the fact that all the parts of the body are joined one with the other and with their exalted head. For the whole Spirit of Christ is in the head, the whole Spirit is in the body, and the whole Spirit is in each of the members. The Holy Spirit makes the church the temple of the living God. Indeed, it is to the church herself that the gift of God has been entrusted. In it is in her that communion with Christ has been deposited. That is to say, the Holy Spirit, the pledge of incorruptibility, the strengthening of our faith, and the latter of our ascent to God. For where the church is, there also is God's Spirit. Where God's Spirit is, there is the church and every grace. The Holy Spirit is the principle of every vital and truly saving action in each part of the body. He works in many ways to build up the whole body in charity. By God's word, which is able to build you up. By baptism, through which he forms Christ's body. By the sacraments, which give growth and healing to Christ's members. By the grace of the apostles, which holds first place among his gifts. By the virtues, which make us act according to what is good. 
Finally, by the many special graces called charisms, by which he makes the faithful fit and ready to undertake various tasks and offices for the renewal and building up of the church. Charisms. Whether extraordinary or simple and humble, charisms are graces of the Holy Spirit which directly or indirectly benefit the church, ordered as they are to her building up, to the good of men and to the needs of the world. Charisms are to be accepted with gratitude by the person who receives them and by all members of the church as well. They are a wonderfully rich grace for the apostolic vitality and for the holiness of the entire body of Christ, provided they really are genuine gifts of the Holy Spirit and are used in full conformity with authentic promptings of the same spirit, that is, in keeping with charity, the true measure of all charisms. It is in this sense that discernment of charisms is always necessary. No charism is exempt from being referred and submitted to the church's shepherds. Their office is not indeed to extinguish the spirit, but to test all things and hold fast to what is good, so that all the diverse and complementary charisms work together for the common good. In brief, Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. One enters into the people of God by faith and baptism. All men are called to belong to the new people of God, so that in Christ, men may form one family and one people of God. The church is the body of Christ. Through the Spirit and his actions in the sacraments, above all the Eucharist, Christ, who once was dead and is now risen, establishes the community of believers as his own body. In the unity of this body, there is a diversity of members and functions. All members are linked to one another, especially to those who are suffering, to the poor and persecuted. The church is this body of which Christ is the head. She lives from him, in him, and for him. He lives with her and in her. The church is the bride of Christ. He loved her and handed himself over for her. He has purified her by his blood and made her the fruitful mother of all God's children. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the soul, as it were, of the mystical body, the source of its life, of its unity and diversity, and of the riches of its gifts and charisms. Hence, the universal church is seen to be a people brought into unity from the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This brings us to the end of our episode for today. Thanks for joining me for another week of Catholic Light. Between now and next week, please join me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. And if you feel up to it, Share one way you hope to exercise your priestly, prophetic, or kingly office this week. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me, and I'll see you next week. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.